Papa God, we, um, we're thankful as we gather in this space uh, this evening, um, as we gather online in homes, uh, that as snow is falling, uh, that we are warm and that we are dry. And uh, these are gifts that not everyone has and, and we don't want to overlook. Uh, we thank you for your word uh, and for uh, your provision uh, to know uh, who you are through it and to know your son Jesus. And uh, Jesus, we ask that you would uh, make your presence felt here this morning uh, through the work of your spirit. Spirit, we ask that you would be free, um, that there wouldn't be anything uh, in our hearts that would resist you. Uh, we ask that you would bridge the gap uh, between those of us that are gathered here and the other locations and online, that, that your church is gathered uh, in spirit and in truth on this day. And we ask that um, you would take much glory and that you would give us uh, joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, good evening. Very excited to be here with you guys uh, and for everybody online. I'm just going to move this over a teeny bit. Worried I'm going to trip on that. Uh, my name is Brian, I'm the executive pastor here at Church 21, and we are in a sermon series called Stories Jesus Told. And this is looking at parables uh, that Jesus has told throughout uh, the Gospels. And this evening, we are tackling one of the more popular parables, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this parable is so popular that it has taken on a life of its own in our culture. We have even if you don't go to church, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you still know the term Good Samaritan. What, what does the Good Samaritan mean? What does it mean to be a Good Samaritan? Somebody say. Anybody? To help your neighbor. Anybody else? To help a stranger. Yeah. A Good Samaritan is like somebody who goes out of their way to help somebody else who's in need. Uh, we also, when we hear the term Good Samaritan, maybe you have like an emotional response to that phrase. You might feel like that's nice. That's a nice thing. Kind of a Mr. Rogers kind of warm feeling. Uh, you may also feel a little bit guilty. You may feel a little bit of moral uh, pressure that there's been uh, moments in your life where maybe you've had the opportunity to be uh, a, a good Samaritan and, and you weren't. I have one such episode in my life. Uh, I was once driving down the highway really fast, like normal speed limit fast. Uh, everybody's going fast. And there was this white Jeep in front of me, a few car lengths ahead. And they were clearly on their phone or something because as the highway started to turn to go this way, they just kept going straight. And eventually they hit like that noise-making grooves or whatever they put on the highway to keep us all alive or they hit some gravel or something, and they noticed. They looked up. Oh, man, we're driving off the highway. So what did they do? Massively overcompensate. What took place next was like something I had never seen in my life, like in person, only in movies, you know, with stunt drivers and stuff. Their, their car, they jerked the wheel, overcompensated, and they just started sliding on their wheels. And then the car did this crazy thing where it like snapped this way and slid and snapped this way and slid. And then it finally pointed and went down into the grass in between the highway. And as it's happening, like as soon as it's all happened very fast, but as soon as it started, I start slowing down. I start pulling off to the right. I'm thinking this car's going to catch its front wheel and it's just going to start flipping. It's just going to start flipping. It's going to be crazy. It didn't. 
it just parked in the grass, like down nice and smooth. And I pull over, I'm freaking out. And I see their, their brake lights come on. I'm like, okay, they must be conscious. They're putting their foot on the brakes. I think they're okay. Probably shouldn't run across three lanes of traffic. And in that moment, I just decided I'm just going to keep driving. I'm late for a church meeting and I'm just going to keep going. I'm not going to stop. And as I'm driving, I'm feeling inside myself feelings of conviction. Like maybe, why didn't I stay longer just to see? Why didn't I call 911 to like, you know, report that this thing had happened? And it wasn't like really like a car crash, but still like maybe they could be hurt. And I, I wondered why I wasn't more loving towards this person. As I explored my heart further, I realized I had maybe hardened my heart a little bit against them because they had endangered other people's lives by being a distracted driver and could have, you know, killed other people. And I it was like, it's their own fault. It's their own fault they went into the median like that. And and so I I I wrestled with this and I realized like looking back on it, I would do things differently. Um, and I can just see Jesus in heaven being like, ah. Oh, you know, textbook failure, church leader on their way to a meeting, too busy to stop to help somebody. I'm like, man, this is just the worst. So I still, I still feel, you know, guilty about it even now when I think about it. Why? Because of this parable. It hangs over Western society as this moral story that we all feel the weight of. And rightly so, because if we don't love our neighbor, if we say we love our neighbor, we don't take action to actually love our neighbor, that's a sin. Wages of sin is death. Like, it's appropriate that we feel this moral weight. And uh, perhaps you guys have similar stories, similar experiences, and maybe they had better outcomes, I hope. Um, But this parable is still relevant to us today. It it rests on us as a continuous sort of moral, psychological, social weight, which is remarkable when you think about it. It's just a story that Jesus told 2,000 years ago, and yet it still um, has this sort of heaviness for us. Um, but in addition to this sort of moral weight uh, on us, there is also uh, life. If we dig down deeper into this parable, we find life itself. So what we're going to do this evening is we're going to work to put on an interpretive lens to be able to dig into this particular parable to see both the, the moral story and the gospel story, both layers of what Jesus has put into here. So First of all, uh, what is a parable? A parable is a short story that illustrates one or more instructive lessons or, or principles. And it's a, it's a type of metaphorical analogy, and it was one of the ways, if not the primary way, that Jesus chose to teach and communicate. And it comes from the Greek word parabole. So bole, like like bowling, literally to throw, and then para next to. So they would just sort of be like, oh, you know, we're going to talk about this. I'm just going to roll, I'm just going to roll this story out here alongside of what I want you to understand, and, and, and you'll get it, you'll get it. And so within the Greco-Roman Hebraic culture that Jesus was working in, this was like a common thing. They're like, oh, he's telling the story, it's got a principle, and everybody's looking for that. But is this how Jesus used the parables? Well, Jesus actually tells us why he speaks in parables in Mark chapter 4, starting in verse 10. And when he, Jesus, was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but to those outside everything is in parables, so they may indeed see, 
but not perceive. And they may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. That's a weird sort of like missional strategy is to just hide what he's saying in parables so that people, it sounds like Jesus is working a way to like, he doesn't want people to understand. He doesn't want them to repent. So that's strange. So what's going on here? First of all, obviously Jesus is trying to communicate something with his parables. He's, he's communicating in a winsome way. He's very creative and down to earth and engaging with his audience, or at least if you're a first century farmer, a Roman centurion or something like that, like it, it makes sense to you. We living thousands of years later, we have to do a little bit of interpretive work to kind of get ourselves into that vantage point. And over the last few weeks, as we've had parables, usually the guy preaching is like doing some of that work and be like, okay, imagine you're a farmer and you're throwing seed and doing some of that to get us into that space. But once we get there, usually it's pretty obvious what Jesus is doing. He's poking fun at the Pharisees, or he's sort of unpacking uh, the, the depths of the failure of the people of God uh, morally, or talking or trying to describe the intangible yet valuable nature of the kingdom of God. It's, once we get to that space, it's kind of obvious what Jesus is trying to do. So why would Jesus say that he's using parables to, to hide something? Well, it's because under the obvious sort of surface level message that Jesus has in these, there is also a secret sort of underlying uh, communication, a more obscured message. And C.S. Lewis does such a great job of illustrating this concept in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Who's read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Come on, people. Yes. Or watched one of the movies, British version or modern version. They're both, yay, they're both good. Yes. They're so good. And uh, it's really great because in that you see like the witch understands knowledge to this point, but Aslan knows about the what? The deep magic or the deeper magic. So there's this like secret stuff that's like even deeper that, that only Aslan knows. And so this is the same kind of thing that Jesus does in these parables. Is he's like, oh, there's this big thing up here, but there's this deeper magic uh, below. So the obvious surface level message is usually a moral one. But then the underneath secret hidden meaning is usually a gospel message. So they're both there. And so in this way, Jesus, with great genius, is able to tell the same story to the same people and have self-righteous people have their hearts hardened and have wretched sinners experience like a feast of grace and mercy, all with the same story. And both layers being uh, important and valuable, one causing death, one causing life. So all of that by way of introduction, sort of providing our interpretive lens. So we're going to put that on our eyes and our ears and our hearts, and we're going to dig into this particular uh, parable. And we'll see not just the moral story, but the gospel story underneath. So first, the moral story. Why did Jesus tell this parable? Well, contextually, we can see there's this teacher of the law. Verse 25, Behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, the teacher of the law, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So why is he asked this question? Well, amazingly, the Bible gives us the insight into his inner motive. Why is this guy wrestling with this? He wants to justify himself. Why does he need to justify himself? Because he had obviously not been loving his neighbor 
he's sort of making uh, um, an appeal to the fact that, like, the, the law that this is under has been too inspecific. It's not specific enough to identify who my neighbor is. It's not precise in identifying the neighbor. So therefore, he can't be expected rightly to know who he should be showing love to. Therefore, he should get some grace if he gets it wrong, or in this case, just fails to do it at all. And you can imagine the other teachers of the law and Pharisees there, they're sort of nodding in silent agreement. Yes, they too have kind of been using this loophole. Maybe not always consciously, but if someone pushes them on it, this is where they run. They're like, well, who really even counts as my neighbor? And so in response to this self-justification and probably the hardness of their hearts, which Jesus could have seen, uh, that he tells this story. Jesus replied, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. So what's the initial obvious thing that Jesus is doing here? He's taking the teachers of law, the Pharisees, these guys, he's placing them in the story. You got the priest, you got the Levite, and these guys were the rock stars of the culture at this point. They were the guys who were writing the really cool books. They had like the podcast episodes that were going viral. These guys, like everybody thought they were just crushing it, right? So if you want to input your own life in here, you can think of like, who do you go to for content? Who are you? Who, what, do you what do you think, Nehemiah? Who would you put into this story? You guys are shushing him. Let the children come unto me. What, 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 who, who would you look to? Who, what podcast do you listen to? Percy Jackson. I don't know if that's a real person, but that's, that's the, the author of Percy Jackson. There you go. I listen to the Tim Ferriss show. So if you're familiar with that, it's like you can insert them in there. The four-hour Good Samaritan. Some of you guys are thinking of Joe Rogan. That's inappropriate. Um, but these heroes, these guys, they pass them by. They don't do the thing. They, they don't do the right thing. And maybe the other listeners, you know, they're going to give them a break. They say, you know, there's the laws about the cleanliness and like there's blood and this guy might be dead. Might be dead. You're not supposed to touch a dead body. And if they became unclean, then they couldn't do the things that they need to do at the super important meeting that they're headed to. So maybe they give them a, a pass. And we have to remember that they, unlike us, did not grow up with this parable ringing in their ears. You know, you walking past somebody who's been beaten up, you know what you're supposed to do. You've heard the story. They didn't heard the story. They don't have this sort of framework. So they give them a pass. But then what happens? Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And they set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. So now the real hero of the story shows up, right? And everybody cheers, right? False. No. This guy was the worst. They did not like that this guy showed up at this point. The Samaritans were these people who claimed to be from the other half of the nation of Israel. You guys remember in the Old Testament, there's like the big kingdom, King David, King Solomon, but then eventually it splits. Northern kingdom, southern kingdom, and they each go into separate exile. Northern kingdom goes into the Syrian empire, and they never really come back officially. The southern, they get sent back eventually to the promised land, but the northern, they're under Syria. Syria gets conquered by the Babylonians. They get conquered by the Persians, and these 10 tribes of Israel sort of just get like pummeled out of genetic existence. They're not really like a people anymore. They've been intermarrying and, and whatever. And there's some 
you know, claims that like, oh, well, some of them trickled back, but nothing official. But now you've got these people later at Jesus' time who are claiming to be these Israelites, these 10 tribes of Israel returned, and as if they're like the real Israelites. And the word Samaritan actually means guardian of the Torah. And so in their name, they're like actually like the guardian or the keeper of the law, the Torah. Who are they keeping it from? The Jews. Judah, the tribe of Judah, who hijacked the Israelite religion and set up this false thing. And then they're, they're the ones who are the true guardians of it. But at this point, they don't really have like the upper hand. The Jews have the upper hand. So it's just like this family feud, weird thing that they really don't like each other. And there's this argument about who, who's right about where the temple should be, where the worship should be occurring. The Jews are saying the temple should be, you know, in Jerusalem on Temple Mount of Moriah. And they're saying, no, no, it should be in uh, the Mount Gerizim or something. It should be this other place. So this was like an ongoing thing. You ever have like that friend in your life that you're like, you try to like, like be nice and like have them in your life. But every time they come over, they're going to start talking about that thing, right? Maybe it's like, conspiracy kind of thing or whatever but it's like always their thing you know they come over for dinner and they're like you know the g5's coming and i'm like ah you know like i can download things so fast now you're downloading cancer that's what you're doing you know so you're like yes yes again they're the cancer you know so it's like this kind of like awkward relationship uh jesus goes to see the woman at the well samaritan woman what she bring up she's like well where do you think the temple should be right it's the same thing so the jews they don't like these people so for the samaritan uh to show up in this story, is not great. It's not their favorite. Uh, And yet, the Samaritan does the obvious human thing. He stops to help the the wounded traveler. And he's clearly a busy guy. He's on his way. He's going to do something and uh, with some sort of business to conduct. And he has the means on him. He's got oil. He's wine. He's got silver coins. He's he's able to uh, do stuff. And he leverages that to help this guy. And he, he's not just out for a Sunday drive. This is in, inconvenience to him. But he cuts through what important thing that he's doing for what's truly important, to love his neighbor. And he actually does it, and it's costly. I think, did you guys have Dwight preaching here last week? Yes? So did he talk about the denarius and how much it was worth in today's money? How much? 450 400 something like that. It was like a lot. This guy, you'll see, he leaves like two denariuses, denarii, I think it calls them. Like, like, so what, like 800, 900 bucks? Like, this was costly to him. This was costly to him. So, taking all of this into consideration, what is, the, what is Jesus' sort of like simplistic moral answer to this guy's original question, who is my neighbor? It's whomever God places in your path. Like, who's ever actually right there? Who's in need in front of you? Um, people matter more than sort of a strict legalistic and bureaucratic uh, adherence to the law or rule following. And loving them means not ignoring the real and obvious needs that God places before you. And this was a common worldview issue that Jesus had to deal with. You remember when he was healing on the Sabbath and they're like, you can't heal on the Sabbath, that's doing work. Jesus is like, seriously, seriously, don't you guys go and get your donkey when it falls in the well or whatever on the Sabbath? Aren't, aren't people more important than animals? So this was, a, this was a thing that Jesus had to deal with. And we don't struggle because we live in a post-Jesus world where this is more obvious. So the big obvious surface level moral of instruction, the, the weighty part of this 
parable the, is this, this moral imperative that we should help our neighbors in these very concrete sort of specific situations. The ambiguity is, is removed. If you see someone in hurting, you should address it. And though as Jesus' followers were given a new heart that uh, has new desires, that desires for justice and mercy and love of neighbor, we still have the flesh hanging on us, kind of like a, a weighted blanket. You guys ever had a weighted blanket? They're amazing. My wife got me a weighted blanket, and she's like, I want some weighted blanket. So she went king size on this thing. And then she's like, I don't like it. And so guess who has all 30 pounds on? It's just like, I can't even get out of bed. I'm just like trying to like pull the thing. And it's just like arranged wrong. You can have nightmares. Anyways, I think of that. Like you think about the flesh. It's like this weighted blanket on it. And you're like, I want to do this right thing, but it just feels out of reach to me because of this. There's this tension. Instead, I find myself doing what I don't want to do, as Paul says. Now, Jesus explaining things with his life, earthly ministry, is just making it worse, right? Now love of neighbor dialed in real tight, real specific. Before it was like, just don't murder people. But now you can't even hate them. You know, that just got real tight. And, you know, I haven't committed adultery. And he's like, Jesus is like, oh, but lusting, huh? Right? So Jesus just keeps moving the bar further and further out of reach. And so this is a nice story about helping people. But as someone who desires to do the right thing, this just made life a lot more difficult. So where are we going to, where do we even go from this? Two things. Uh, Before we finish, we will go back and we will look for that, that golden thread of the gospel that Jesus weaves into everything that he does. But before we do that, we're going to just kind of highlight a couple of additional surface-level things that Jesus does in this last couple of verses in this story. So we'll resume that, and then we'll circle around to the gospel. Uh, So going back to verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him, And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. So a few few observations uh, about this. First of all, the need that that this guy was addressing was immediate. It was an immediate need in every sense of the word. This guy was like immediately in his vicinity, like immediately right before him. And quite obviously he needed like immediate right away kind of help or he could die. He was dying kind of thing. So it was very immediate. And this is opposed to more general needs in the world that are not as immediate. And you don't want to like press the parable too far, but this is just generally true that if this was a real guy and he's going along in his life, he probably, if you'd asked him, could have enumerated many needs that were in the Roman Empire, many crises and famines and genocides and all kinds of awful things that were happening, needs out in the world. But he wasn't going, seeking after those. Instead, he was responding to the need that God had placed right before him. And we see Jesus operating in very much the same manner that Jesus certainly was aware of of a lot of brokenness in the world, probably more than we would even be capable of dealing with. He's aware of all of this stuff and grieved by it. But do we see Jesus running around like a crazy person, being like, I've got three years, you know, maximize, right? No, he doesn't, he doesn't do that. He's very focused, and he only ever does what the Lord tells him to do. The Father, through the Spirit, tells him what to do, and he does that, and sometimes he doesn't finish what could be done in a particular area before he's like, we're going over here. 
And even the disciples are like, what about this, these people? Like, you didn't heal everybody. You didn't have time. And like, nope, this is next. This is next. So Jesus has enormous uh, freedom in that he's only ever doing exactly what it is that the Lord is asking him to do. I raise this point because today, through our magic phones that we have in our pockets, we have access to all the horrors of the world. Not even all, but like way too many horrors in the world all the time. All the time. We're aware of all of this terrible stuff happening on the planet. And if you go to Wikipedia, you can read about every bad thing that's ever happened that anyone noticed. And we have algorithms predicting pretty terrible things in the near future. It's like a little bit overwhelming how many bad things that we're aware of. And this is like not a normal condition as human beings. This was not the way it was for a very long time. This is kind of like a new problem uh, that we have. Uh, that the world is this, like this knowledge of the world being this great sort of bleeding wound of suffering. And what can we do? That knowledge can be paralyzing. And in this paralysis, we can, like the teachers of the law, do nothing. We can do nothing. Uh, we, we seek to justify inaction. The task is too great. Where could I reasonably be expected to start? Jesus' answer is, again, right in front of you. Whatever God has placed in your path. Ergo, don't worry about the whole world. You can have compassion on it. And yes, God may even call you to, to care about and get involved in a distant place, a distant person, distant situation. Go there, give money. But that's not like the everyday kind of experience of life. Everyday experience of life is much more like right in front of you. And Jesus expects us to be faithful with what is immediate right in front of us. And, and maybe you think like, well, you know, I just, when you, when you get down to what's right in front of me, I just don't see a lot of crisis right, right in front of me. It's on the news and stuff, but like I have never walked across a bleeding person in the street. And again, this is partly because we live in a post-Jesus, post-Good Samaritan story world where we have institutionalized the response to this exact situation. Bleeding person, 911, 10 seconds later, professionals, flashing lights, oxygen, bags of blood, right? Like we, we have this intense response to these types of situations, which take a lot of them out of our lives. Unless you're like the first responder, you know, for two minutes, you get to be the person. And after that, it's taken from you. So again, we get, without having a real sort of like needs and crisis in front of us, we, we trade it in for sort of a nebulous guilt, a nebulous sort of anxiety about what's around us. And again, we do nothing, which is a huge uh, cop-out. Because God does not expect us to rescue the world. That's his job. He doesn't expect us to be saviors. Instead, he subcontracts out the job of the world to us in little bits, little contracts, little pieces where we each then just have to do what it is that he's called us to and not worry about the rest. And if we ask for eyes to see, he will show us the needs that are otherwise invisible to us. There are people hurting all around us all the time in maybe not physically bleeding ways like this guy was, but there are a lot, there's a lot of struggle that's happening during COVID and people need someone to like talk to even sometimes. Uh, so there is opportunities. Uh, but that kind of gets us to the point of like, well, yes, I could ask God to show me things, but what if he asks me to do something hard? What if he asks me to do something costly? I'm kind of like, and, and so we don't ask and we don't look clearly at what God's put in our path. We kind of look away or we hide our eyes because we're afraid. We're afraid of the cost where it will cost too much. But look more closely at Jesus' example. Did he bring the wounded traveler home with him? 
Did he never make it to his final destination, what he was supposed to do? No. He did the messy first responder stuff, and he spent the day with a guy, and then he literally just outsourced the rest of his care. He just like wrote a check, and he just kept going on his business. It was costly. It was very costly, right? 900 bucks or whatever. But it was, it was doable with the means that he had, that God had provided for him. He had oil, he had wine, he had silver coins. He was there, he was able to take care of it, took a day, and then he's back on his track. It wasn't too costly. So the point that I'm trying to highlight here is that the type of love for neighbor that, that Jesus is calling us to is sacrificial. It is costly, but it is not more costly than we can bear. It won't be more costly than you can bear. It won't destroy you. And it won't require of you gifts and resources that God has not richly blessed you with in the first place. Uh, we aren't called to love our neighbor out of scarcity, but out of abundance of everything that we have from the Lord. So, in sum, on this kind of middle part here, not meant to care for the whole world, but instead be ready to care for those that God puts into your immediate path with immediate needs, and do not fear the cost. God will so richly supply you with everything you need to accomplish his mission for you in the world. And if you're not equipped to do it alone, bring other people into it. Bring other people and resources to bear. One of the traps that people fall into is then they overdo this and they get into weird codependent relationships and they overexert themselves in weird ways. Then they simply become the next hurting person that someone else has to come around and help. And they're going above and beyond what the Lord would have them do. And that's not what God wants or needs from us. We aren't saviors. We're just servants. And there's a big difference. All right, so let's say you're feeling better about all of these fears that you had. Okay, it's like nebulous stuff out there. No, like what's right here? And I'm not afraid of the cost. I'm going to ask the Lord to show me. Great. Now you are all set to become self-righteous. You will become really successful at this. You'll be like the Mother Teresa of your neighborhood, floating around, loving everybody, kind and wonderful on the outside. But perhaps inside, you're like, I'm pretty good. I'm like the best person in my, I'm the Mother Teresa of my neighborhood. And everybody knows it. And they love me. And you begin to believe that you are justified by these actions. And you will be self-righteous. Action can be just as sinful as, as inaction if you do this seeking to rid yourself of the need of Jesus. So, regardless if you're paralyzed in inaction on this issue of loving your neighbor, or if you're quite good at loving your neighbor and you're at risk of pride and self-justification, in both cases, we need the gospel. So that is where we're going to come in to land. Uh, so we're going to look for the hidden message in this parable, the thing that Jesus isn't being explicit about, but is still baked in there, the deeper magic. You ready? So in order to do this, we have to change our vantage point. Usually what we do when we look at the story is we're like, okay, don't be like the Levite or the, pre, you know, the guys who go around. Be more like the Samaritan who goes in and loves his neighbor. We're always putting ourselves on the, we're the one who's encountering the need, right? But to look at Jesus's like layer of message below this, we need to put ourselves as the traveler on the ground, broken, beaten, half-naked, penniless, dying in need of a savior. That's where we have to put ourselves. And when we do that, Jesus becomes the good Samaritan. He approaches us. He comes and he anoints us with oil. He gives us good wine on our wounds, maybe some inside too for the pain. And, and he's bandaging up. He's in getting involved with us intimately, and it's costly to him. 
And he responds perfectly to this situation. And then through the great exchange, Jesus gifts us his perfect actions in the midst of responding to this issue. As we press deeper still, we actually see that as he's binding these and he's caring for us, he's pouring, pouring all of this stuff into our wounds and making us better, that in a moment, suddenly we've traded places. And we're looking down on Jesus and he's wounded and dying in our place. And we're holding bandages and oil and we're like, what did I just do? Did I just do the right thing? Did I just care for, did I just love my neighbor? I didn't do this, but I'm credited like everyone's recognizing that I have. He suddenly traded places. So that Jesus isn't just binding up your wounds, but he's also giving you the perfect record of having done the right thing that you weren't good at. You were naturally going to walk on by, but now you've stopped and you've helped someone. And Jesus credits you that. And then we see that in this, then the, le- the, the teachers of the law, they stop being the people who walk by and they become the robbers, the ones who beat the Savior, Jesus. So many layers. Jesus is a, like masterful storyteller. So it's like you're like, oh yeah, this story, good moral lesson. But there's more. If you dig deeper, there's more. And probably it's like you can go even further uh, down. I just learned something new called fractal geometry. The Mandelbrot set. Have you guys ever seen this? You have to Google it. It's insane. It's these mathematical things where you can zoom in on them forever. And the Mandelbrot set, they call the thumbprint of God. It helps solve some cosmological issues about free will. It blew my mind. I'm still processing it. Anyways, it's kind of like that. I think you can just keep dialing in deeper and deeper into scripture. And you're like, show me more, Lord. And he's like, oh, you want to go closer? And it's just like more, more detail. All right, so conclusion. Let all of these layers, all of this beauty, all of this pieces that Jesus built for us rest down onto your hearts today. Kind of process through all of them. You can measure yourself against the good Samaritan and find yourself wanting. You can place yourself bloody on the road so that Jesus as the Good Samaritan can come and rescue you. And then suddenly, you're the Good Samaritan who actually did the work and stand in righteousness and perfection. And that you can go and be with God, the Father. This is what we do when we, when we take the bread and the cup, which we will do in a little bit here as a part of response. Is we're, 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 we're breaking the bread to reflect the breaking of, of Jesus's body, like that traveler's body is broken, laying on the road, that we're drinking the cup that we remember that Jesus's blood went into the dust, went into the ground for us, and was just pooled there uh, on our behalf. Um, This is why we do this, and then his blood covers our sin, washes us clean, white as snow, and if you've never experienced this this gift of mercy, this weird twist of, of logic Um, where Jesus trades places with us. He stands ready over your broken body with bandages and wine and oil, and he is ready to heal you and to trade places with you and not just fix you, but also grant you a perfect response so that even in the midst of your life, you're like, didn't love my neighbor, didn't love my neighbor, loved him, but was proud, loved him, but was self-righteous. But when you get to the end, The Father sees Jesus' perfect work and says, well done, well done. I'm going to pray and uh, and invite us into this time of response. And again, if you've never done that, I would invite you to even talk to Jesus now and invite him to bind your wounds. Jesus, we 
I am thankful that you did not pass me by. Um, And I'm thankful that you um, have persisted with me um, despite my uh, continued failure under the weight of my flesh and this struggle. Um, I consistently fail to reach these astronomical standards, but you reach them, Jesus. And so um, I am thankful. And I'm I'm thankful um, uh, that there are so many here and across our church uh, and around the uh, city who are, are wrestling with this parable uh, today and ask that you would cause um, uh, both the, the crushing moral imperative and the beauty of the gospel uh, to flood our hearts. I ask that new people would be added to your kingdom this day uh, by your work and by your hand. Um, and as we respond, I ask, Spirit, that you uh, would continue this work, uh, that you don't finish with us Uh, but that you're just getting started and you're making us more and more perfect. ask that you would do that um, and that your gifts would be present. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.